This is a Federal News Network podcast. A new and impressive statistic has emerged from the pandemic. Everyone knew that remote medical visits or telehealth grew when people could not or were afraid to visit health providers in person. Now the Health and Human Services Office of Inspector General has quantified it for one large section of the population. Some 28 million people on Medicare used telehealth in the first year of the pandemic. Here with more of what they found and why it's important, the Assistant IG, Aaron Bliss. Ms. Bliss, good to have you on. So happy to be here, Tom. Thank you. And just to set the scene here, this is one of several studies you have been doing of pandemic healthcare delivery by Medicare and Medicaid services throughout this whole deal we've been through. Yes, that's right. This report is part of a much larger portfolio of OIG work on telehealth, and it's also the first in a series of three evaluations specifically analyzing use of telehealth and Medicare during the first year of the pandemic, or from March 2020 through February 2021. So this first report provides the landscape overview of what that telehealth use looks like. The second report delves into which groups of Medicare beneficiaries use telehealth the most to access care and how did they access that care. And the third evaluation focuses on provider billing that may present program integrity risks. All right. And telehealth was generally paid for or not paid for by Medicare before the pandemic? Before the pandemic, Medicare coverage of telehealth was very limited. For example, beneficiaries in rural areas were allowed to use telehealth for some service types, but had to access those services from medical facilities. They couldn't use it from their homes. In the year prior to the pandemic, less than 1% of Medicare beneficiaries received any services via telehealth. All right. And so this 28 million that did, I think your report said, is one out of five. Yes, actually just over two out of five. COVID-19 changed everything about healthcare delivery, created unprecedented challenges for how Medicare beneficiaries and others accessed healthcare. And so Congress and the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, or CMS, took a number of actions to temporarily open up access to telehealth for Medicare beneficiaries. So CMS allowed beneficiaries to use telehealth for a wider range of services and in different locations, including from their home and for beneficiaries in urban areas. And give us some of the other statistics you found. I mean, 28 million, what do they generally, for example, use telehealth for? Or was it everything you would ordinarily go to the doctor for? It was. And in fact, office visits, which are basically routine appointments with your primary or specialty care provider, did account for the largest amount of telehealth services. But what really stood out was the way beneficiaries use telehealth to access behavioral health care. So 43% of all behavioral health services were provided through telehealth. And this was far more than other types of services. So those office visits were only provided through telehealth about 13% of the time. So telehealth was really crucial in meeting the rising mental health and substance use disorder needs that emerged during the pandemic. Yeah. So for example, psychotherapy or talk therapy type of thing where people might even have been more effective for all we know, under under the tele-situation as opposed to sitting in a chair somewhere. Exactly, exactly. There are other barriers even beyond the pandemic for seeking in-care 
in-person care sometimes for people suffering from mental health issues or behavioral health issues. So individual therapy, group therapy, substance use disorder treatment were accessed through telehealth much more frequently than other types of services. We're speaking with Erin Blish. She's the Assistant Inspector General at the Health and Human Services Department. And so what can CMS take away from this? I mean, well, let's begin with what is the status of payment for telehealth now? As you mentioned earlier, that was a temporary fix that Congress and HHS agreed to because it was expediency. Now we know that it works. And so is it a permanent part of the Medicare system? Not yet. So Congress is considering multiple bills that would be aimed at expanding access to telehealth for the long term and recently extended many of the current telehealth flexibilities for five months after the end of the public health emergency. So we see this report as providing important information for both Congress and CMS as they continue to figure out and weigh what types of changes to make to the permanent telehealth policy in Medicare. They're balancing concerns around access, quality, equity, and program integrity. Right. I guess the key here is does CMS have the tools in place to evaluate that they are getting the quality care they're paying for when it's a telesituation? Is that really where the crux of this whole question lies? That's a very important dimension, making sure that The beneficiaries are receiving the care that they need, of the quality that they need, and the value that we're paying for. But yet, the issues of quality, the issues of access, and the issues of program integrity and making sure that providers aren't taking advantage of telehealth to defraud the system are all incredibly important considerations. And so CMS and Congress, where legislative authority is needed, are trying to weigh all those different factors. So this current report provides information about what types of services were being used, how many beneficiaries were accessing them. You know, it's interesting to know that even though we had this huge uptick in the use of telehealth, overall, beneficiaries still received most of their health care in person. So telehealth only accounted for 12% of the total health care services during that first year of the pandemic. So our findings illustrate how telehealth might fit into that larger picture of healthcare delivery. For behavioral health, telehealth became an essential way that beneficiaries access their care. But for other services, telehealth just helped beneficiaries access care when they faced certain barriers, but most of their care remained in person and with their pre-existing providers. Sure. I guess, well, if you have a condition that requires being touched by a practitioner or an instrument, then you really got to be there. So far, there's no way to do that robotically. And what's your sense of what CMS thinks? I mean, how do they take the report? You didn't really have recommendations. You found a lot of facts about all of this. What happens next uh, for CMS? Exactly. Well, CMS is very um, actively weighing its policy options and determining you know, what it should do moving forward. We hope that this information will help provide them useful insights. As I mentioned earlier, this is part of a larger series. And so our upcoming reports that focus on which beneficiaries are using telehealth and in what ways, which has implications for access and for equity, as well as program integrity risks associated with certain telehealth providers, we anticipate that we'll have recommendations for CMS coming out of those reports. Yes, because program integrity is a big ongoing forever issue for CMS because it's the largest 
payer of improper payments and some of the sensational cases come to, to light once in a while. And I guess you don't want those for telehealth. Exactly, exactly. Um, program integrity is an issue across the board for in-person care as well as for, you know, remote care options. It is important, though, to distinguish between telehealth fraud, which is fraud involving billing for a telehealth service itself, and something that we refer to as telefraud, which is really the use of a telemarketing type tactic to commit basically traditional bread and butter fraud. So in recent years, OIG has had several large um, publicized investigations of telefraud where perpetrators were basically cold calling beneficiaries, conducting a sham visit over the phone, and then ordering unnecessary medical equipment or genetic tests. The fraud in those cases was aimed at the unnecessary billing for the equipment and the tests. For the most part, they weren't actually billing for the fake telehealth phone call. Right. Okay. (laughs) They are certainly creative out there, aren't they, the fraudsters? Absolutely. And that scam even preceded the pandemic, but unfortunately has continued. All right. Well, that next report, we'll have you back for that one. Aaron Bliss is Assistant Inspector General at the Health and Human Services Department. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. Appreciate the opportunity. And we'll post this interview along with a link to her report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks um, as part of her job. She worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader 
that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right? To try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect 
as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind. Um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. <coughs> Cough and cold season is here. Introducing Ricola Max Throat Care, Ricola's most powerful drop yet. It's the best of Swiss nature wrapped around a powerful liquid menthol center for maximum relief from your worst cough and sore throat. Maximum nature for maximum relief. Try the new Ricola Max now, available in the cold and cough aisle. Ricola. It's in our nature. Hey, hon, what you doing with your fun? Do flowers have best friends? I don't know. Hey, look. Whoa. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council.